Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast. Today is September 10th. My name is David McAdam, and I will be serving as your tour guide as we encourage each other to read through today's scriptures from both the Old and New Testaments as they are apportioned out in the One Year Bible. We will also give what we hope will be a helpful explanation of each passage so we can see how what we read together applies to our lives and fits into the overarching story of the Bible. We are in the book of Isaiah as the Lord has called all creation to witness the righteous judgments that are due to the nations of the earth, as well as highlighting his merciful promise to establish his kingdom upon it in the future. The first nation he deals with is that of his own covenant people, Israel. Judgment begins with the house of God. We read Isaiah's first prophecies against Israel in the first five chapters of the book. Later, he will deal with the other nations. But today, we come to chapter 6 and witness a defining moment in the life of the prophet Isaiah. I believe it may correspond with a divining moment in your life and mine. We are never the same after we have a vision of the holiness of the one true triune God, or when we see His perfect attributes on display in the person of His Son. This vision is life-changing, and Jesus of Nazareth will quote the scripture we will read today in Isaiah, and let us know that He is the one who is sitting on the throne in His pre-incarnate glory in Isaiah's vision. He is the one who is being given worship as to Yahweh. The Apostle John further explains in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 41, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him, that is, Jesus. Isaiah had a position of influence in the court of the kings of Judah. He had been in the service of King Uzziah, but Uzziah died. Perhaps we feel like the world has fallen apart when someone close to us dies. How Isaiah must have felt the loss. This was his king. This was the king of the nation. Who would take his place on the throne? It is then that Isaiah has a vision of the one who truly sits on the throne, the holy God of Israel. He has not abandoned his sovereignty. So let's get started reading these important chapters in Isaiah. To prime the pump of your perceptivity, notice the reference to the Trinity in verse 8 of chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? In the plural, describing the composite oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's start reading together. Isaiah chapters 6 and 7, starting with chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Isaiah's Vision of the Lord In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Chapter 7 Isaiah Sent to King Ahaz In the days of Ahaz the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The Sign of Emmanuel Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor 
that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for every one who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines with a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. And this concludes today's reading from the Old Testament portion of the One-Year Bible, the prophet Isaiah. Now let's unpack some important observations. Chapter 6 marks a defining moment in the life of the prophet Isaiah. It describes how Isaiah is commissioned to his prophetic office. When King Uzziah dies in 740 B.C., Judah lost a great leader. His vacancy on the throne was widely felt. Some consider Uzziah the last great king of the southern kingdom. He ruled for 52 years and successfully brought the Philistines, Arabians, and Ammonites into subjection. He was able to put the immediate threat of foreign invasion at bay. The nation prospered under his rule. It was thought that the glory of Israel had died with Uzziah. Jotham and his son Ahaz would inherit the throne of Judah. It is in this year of a leadership crisis, the year of King Uzziah's death, that Isaiah sees that God has not abandoned his throne. In a vision, Isaiah's eyes are lifted to a greater throne room where God is worshipped in a greater temple. The one who sits on the throne is the Christ. In the New Testament Gospel of John, we learn that the glorious one who sits on the throne seen by Isaiah is Jesus. John chapter 12, verses 38 through 43. This king is so great that no temple can contain him. Just the train, or the hem of his robe, fills the temple. Isaiah, who most likely had been bemoaning the loss of Uzziah's leadership and possibly personal bereavement of his friendship, is reminded that the true king of the nation is not dead. We all need a fresh vision of the one who is truly on the throne. Do we truly recognize his greatness, his wisdom, his might, his righteousness, and his personal concern for every detail of our lives? We need to ask ourselves, in whom are we putting our confidence? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Isaiah makes another discovery. Not only is God on the throne, and exceedingly great, his train filling the temple, but he is altogether holy and will not compromise with sin. Heavenly beings, called seraphim, surround the throne. It is only in this chapter in the Bible that these particular angels are named. The Hebrew root of the word seraphim means to burn. The verb to burn is used in conjunction with the sin offerings in the Old Testament and are associated with judgment. The root of the word seraph is never used in relationship to the sweet-smelling offerings that speak of Christ representing us as righteous. The seraphim search out and apply the sin-purging aspects of the atonement. They are burners. They apply the positive condemnation of the cross upon the flesh and burn away sin. We have already seen in reading through the Bible that cherubim are protectors of God's holiness, guarding the gates of Eden, the place of fellowship with God. 
The seraphim are perjurers. Together, the cherubim and seraphim make up the living creatures spoken of in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, and the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and are pictured on the veil that separates the holy place from the holiest of all. Fellowship with the Father is off-bounds to the sinner. But Jesus' death on the cross will remove the veil that separates. It will render the judgment of death to the corrupted nature of the old man Adam and provide the way into God's presence through the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. The six-winged seraphim call to one another antiphonally, honoring the thrice-holy triune God with the words, Holy, Holy, Holy. The triple accolades are to give unparalleled emphasis as well as reference to the three persons of the Trinity. The vision of God's holiness humbles Isaiah to dust. He is able to understand the spoken words of the seraphim as their powerful voices cause the posts and thresholds of the temple to tremble. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined, in the New American Standard Bible, undone in the King James Version, lost in the English Standard Version, for my eyes have seen the King. When Isaiah sees God, he sees himself. He sees that he is utterly unfit to be in God's presence. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit bringing personal conviction of sin. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. In the light of God's holiness, Isaiah recognizes his true condition before God as a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. This humbling self-knowledge is essential if anyone is to rightly lay hold of God's mercies. A similar response is found in others who get a glimpse of God's majesty in the Bible. Remember the self-abasement of Job after God makes himself known in Job chapter 42 verses 5 through 6? Or Daniel, when he sees the Lord in his glory and his own comeliness turns to corruption, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 8? Remember Peter, when he witnesses Jesus' miraculous catch in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 8, and cries, Depart from me, I am a sinner? Or the apostle John on the island of Patmos, when he turns to the voice speaking to him and sees the Lord, he falls at his feet as a dead man, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. In chapter 5, Isaiah pronounced a string of six woes upon the people. Now in chapter 6, he laments his own uncleanness with woe is me, oy vey. Oy vey is the Yiddish phrase meaning woe is me. This self-recognition prepares Isaiah for ministry. One of the seraphim applies to Isaiah's mouth a live coal from the altar of the temple where the sin offering has been made, announcing good news. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is a picture of how the message of grace is received by faith with personal impact. The burning live coal is the word of the cross. It symbolizes the communication of the full benefits of the atoning work of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. The Burnt Offering For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. Romans chapter 10, verse 8b. Isaiah is cleansed and now witnesses that the one who sits on the throne has greater concerns than that which occupies the minds of men. 
The one who sits on the throne of God has greater knowledge than those who sit on the thrones of men. Isaiah hears the Lord's concern to have his mind communicated to men and his redemptive purposes advanced. He asks, Whom shall I send? Isaiah answers with reckless abandonment, I will go wherever, whenever, however, here am I. As with other prophets, such as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah's ministry would be exceedingly difficult. The Lord commissions Isaiah to preach a message to people who will, for the most part, not receive it. The ministry of the Word will prove that the people of Judah are not understanding, not perceiving, dull, and callous of heart, in chapter 6, verses 9-10. through 10. How long is Isaiah to preach? He is to preach for the rest of his life. He starts in 740 to 739 B.C. and dies during Manasseh's reign between 687 to 643 B.C. The prophesied judgments come to pass. Eventually, after his death, in from 597 to 538 B.C., the people of Judah are sent into Babylonian exile. In chapter 6, verse 12, Yet God will preserve a remnant and have them return to Jerusalem after the exile. At the end of the chapter, we have another picture of a resurrected branch emerging from a stump. The immediate reference is to a remnant returning after the captivity. The far-reaching meaning of the branch emerging from the stump is a reference to the coming of Christ. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. Chapter 7 contains the prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, but it is also in the context of a more immediate prophecy that takes place during the reign of King Ahaz. The prophecies in Isaiah are not in chronological order. Jotham comes to the throne after his father, Uzziah, dies, and he reigns for sixteen years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 32-34. to 34. Jotham's son, Ahaz, succeeds Jotham and will also reign for sixteen years. He walks in the idolatrous ways of the kings of Israel rather than the ways of his father, Jotham, or grandfather, Uzziah, in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 3-4. to four. He made his son pass through the fire, a pagan rite that might mean child sacrifice. There is a civil war during his reign between the northern and southern kingdoms, with Syria, with King Rezin as its king, aligning with the northern kingdom of Israel, under the reign of King Pekah, against the southern kingdom of Judah, where King Ahaz ruled. Although Ahaz is evil and does not walk in the ways of the Lord, because of God's covenant commitment to the house of David, God promises to protect his kingdom from being conquered by the Israel-Syria alliance. Isaiah is told to meet King Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. He is to bring his son, whose name is Shear Jashub, meaning a remnant will return. He is to give Ahaz a promise of God's protection in chapter 7 verse 8, yet also a warning of what will come to pass if he does not stand firm in his faith in chapter 7 verse 9. Isaiah tells King Ahaz to ask for a sign. The king refuses to do so, citing that he did not want to tempt the Lord. But it was the Lord who had given the message to Isaiah. God would give a sign of assurance to King Ahaz anyway. As we read the prophets, we will notice that there are immediate and local fulfillments of prophecies that validate the authenticity of the prophet's ministry before their contemporaries. 
This is how they were to be recognized as a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, you may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. But many of the prophecies are for long-range fulfillments beyond the lifetimes of the prophets and their own generations. We can be sure of the accuracy of the future prophecies because of the accurate fulfillment of the immediate and local prophecies. The sign that Isaiah prophesies to assure King Ahaz that Judah will be spared from the aggressors, King Rezan and Aram, was this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We know this is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, and that it is, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. But it also had a local and immediate purpose to bring assurance of God's deliverance from the Syrian-Israeli invasion of Judah. It will be fulfilled with the birth of a child. This was intended to convince Ahaz of the authenticity of the prophecy, assuring them that the alliance of Israel and Syria would not overtake Jerusalem, and that God, and not Syria, would establish the throne of David. The word for virgin here in the Hebrew is Alma, which is used for an unmarried woman. It is believed that the prophecy refers to a young woman from the house of Ahaz who was not married at the time when the prophecy was given. She would subsequently marry and give birth to a child named Emmanuel. Therefore, Isaiah was foretelling that before three years had passed, one year for the woman's pregnancy and two further years for the child to become old enough to talk, the two invading armies would be destroyed. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 assures us that the fulfillment of the prophecy of a far more reaching deliverance would be in the further future with the sign of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. Now let's move on to our next stop on our Bible reading tour to the New Testament Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. Paul's sufferings as an apostle. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, 
danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And this is the end of our reading from today's passage in the New Testament from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul continues the defense of his apostleship in the light of the attacks on his credibility and integrity made by the false teachers. He consistently rebukes the Corinthians for their lack of discernment because they give place to false teachers. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. He compares his own credentials to that of his own competitors. He may not be a polished speaker, a great orator, entertainer, or attractive celebrity charging fees for self-help seminars, but he assures them that he is the real deal. He is a genuine Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and a true servant of Christ. He is not in the ministry for the money or for the recognition. He stands for the truth at great cost. He lists his sufferings in comparison to the super-apostles. His harder work, he has had more imprisonments, more floggings, more exposures to death, five times receiving the maximum legal beatings under Roman law of 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned once, three times he was shipwrecked, and there was another shipwreck to come in Acts chapter 27. He knew both times of hunger and thirst, involuntary fasting, and going without food, that is, voluntary fasting. Among the greatest sufferings listed, he includes danger of false brothers. His concern for the church is genuine and all-consuming. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. We read about Paul's brushes with death in Luke's record written in the book of Acts in 62 A.D. In 2 Corinthians, written in 55 or 56 A.D., we get Paul's account. But keep in mind that Paul writes this letter in Macedonia some time after leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, and before returning to Corinth in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 through 3. Paul's list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians is not exhaustive. He has a major shipwreck and more imprisonments to come. Now let's move on to our next stop in our Bible reading tour, the book of Psalms, Psalm 54, verses 1 through 7. The Lord upholds my life. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. 
they do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 54 is another prayer of David when he is betrayed by Ziphites, who intend to deliver him into the murderous hands of King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 19, we read, Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? As David cries for help, he remembers that God is his help. In Psalm 54, verse 4, he requests that God avenge his enemies in verse 5. He concludes the psalm expressing confidence that God will prove himself to be faithful because his name is good. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 54, verse 6. Do you have confidence in the goodness of God, even when you are being betrayed, pursued, and surrounded by enemies? In verse 7. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. And now for our final stop, we go to the book of Proverbs, and we will read Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. The practical advice given in these Proverbs is that we should be careful how we conduct ourselves in the presence of our leaders, employers, or superiors. It is wise to curb our natural appetites, even our desire for approval, when partaking of their occasional lavish offerings, because it may be that they want something from you, are observing you, or are bribing you to do something that is not ethical. The expression, put a knife to your throat, means control yourself, similar to bite your tongue, or put a lid on it. Let's pray together. Lord, we need a fresh vision of your holiness. Forgive us for bemoaning temporal situations and looking to men and women as our help rather than to you. May we never forget that you are reigning on the throne. Thank you for the cross and the ministry of the word that applies its benefits to us by the power of your Spirit. Help us to discern your concerns. We ask that you would send us as your ambassadors to bring the message of the cross, the message of reconciliation, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to others. For you are our help, O God. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, it was a blessing to behold the glory of God in his word today and to get a perspective on what is truly important. God willing, we'll continue our journey tomorrow. If you have any questions or comments, you're welcome to contact us by writing an email to podcast at newlife.org. And if you'd like to know more about New Life Community Church and its many ministries, or you'd like to receive a written copy of our commentary on today's reading and future readings, you can go to our website, newlife.org. So until next time, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Shalom.